You are listening to the Music Ed Mentor Podcast, where we help music educators to build, manage, and grow thriving school music programs and have long and happy careers. My name is Elisa Jansen-Jones. I am the host of this podcast, and I am so thankful that you are going to spend this next little bit of time with me. Get comfortable because this episode might make you a little uncomfortable. Y'all know I like a bit of controversy, right? Well, it's time to either get uncomfortable or pull out your pom-poms because in this episode, we'll be discussing some unpopular opinions in music education with my friend Steve Giddings. Steve started rocking the proverbial music education boat a few years ago when he published his first book, Rock Coach, to help traditional band directors start modern music ensembles in their school, regardless of their training to do so. His second book, Creative Musicking, Steve talks about how to help our students open up to making music, regardless of their ability to read notation. His new book brings together the creative music making with technology and will be available through Oxford Press. You can learn more about how Steve is rocking the world of music education in his website, stevesmusicroom.com, or on any of his social media feeds, which you will find links to in the show notes for this episode at smartmusic.com. In this interview, Steve and I address some of the most overlooked questions in music education, like why are we insisting on continuing to teach one type of musical notation when there are many other types available for students to use? Why are we teaching the great composers when they weren't even the popular music of their time, but the music of the socially elite? Why have we so often said that sight reading is the truest test of musical skill and downplayed the ability of students to play by ear? Which one is truly the test of musicianship? We discuss all of this and more to either get you all excited for how you can rethink teaching in your own classroom or get you all riled up because you're not ready to think about these paradigm shifts. And that's okay too. Either way, I'm glad you're here. But first, a huge thanks to Smart Music for making this podcast happen. If you're dealing with the common issue of mixed instruments and mixed skill levels in your classroom, Smart Music's tools for automated learning and assessment can help keep students on task and on track. Explore all of Smart Music's features designed to help you do what you do best, which is teach. And if you're looking for a video resource library for your students to learn at home or for you to use in your classroom, look at musicprofessor.com. This robust series of resources will support your students in self-paced learning at home or in the classroom to help support you in differentiating instruction based on the individual needs of your students. See how Music Professor can work for you at musicprofessor.com slash schools. Now, let's talk about some paradigm shifts with Steve Giddings. So, like I say, we, we tend to teach how we were taught. And unfortunately, so many of us were taught through a method book, right? And method books start with what? Notation, most mm-hmm. of the time. And, and so we think that we can't be creative if we can't write down the notation and we forget that we can be entirely creative beings without any notation, without any form, without any semblance of, of pitch. We don't need a metronome. We don't need a tuner. We, as human beings are so inherently musical and we almost derive that from students. We do for sure. Cause it's, we're trained to think that you need to write it down for it to be like a legitimate composition. Um, but really any sound that you can make on an instrument, if you've thought of it, it's never happened before. And it's like a brand new sound or, um, you know, you made the choice to make that sound, then it's a composition. You've composed a piece of music. 
you've, you're being creative. So yeah, it needs to, and I, interesting, cause I, I started at this band program at the school in the community. I've been teaching for 12 years. So I know all the kids, but um, there's some kids who come from another school in the middle of grade nine that, uh, that have never done band before where the other kids started in grade seven. And at the same time, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm trying to teach them as beginners, but there's kids in the class have been playing for three years. So (laughs) the easiest way is to say, here's a book, (laughs) you know, Uh, and uh, they're actually asking for the book too. So, I mean, there's that. Uh, The book that we're using though has some learning by ear stuff as well though, but if I had just that group, I would be doing no notation for as long as possible. Um, But I can see like in a pinch, you want to, you want to get the, uh, the books out cause it's just easier. Um, but then, it, but then that trains them to not be able to play anything without the notation in front of them. Yeah. That, uh, maybe we just need better resources for students yeah. <laughs> because we're never, we're never going to have that perfect world. Many of us, I should say, will never have that perfect world of, of single instrument, you know, learning sequentially, and we have tons of resources and assistant directors and section people. And yeah, and that's it. And we don't have the luxury of that a lot of the time. And uh, I've just been kind of letting them explore themselves. And if they wanted to go onto another tune, I would just say, okay, we'll try this one. Um, so it's kind of like throwing them in the deep end, but at the same time, just guiding them through it as well. Um, but it's, the resource that we use for the beginners anyway at that school is the do it series i'm not sure if you're familiar with that but it's like every other every other song says learn this by ear there's a recording learn it by ear and then it has it written down after so you can actually go in and learn it by ear and then see it written down later and read it that way which really is the way we should be doing it um but often that's not the case so well, I, I want to get back into learning by ear because I do think that that is a massive paradigm shift that we should address. And that's kind of what I want to focus on is like yeah. rethinking music education because now is now is the time we're we're in this opportune moment to be able to do so. So before we go on though, Steve, you need to introduce yourself for the audience. Race that go. Okay. <laughs> my name is Steve Giddings. I run stevemusicroom.com uh, with a blog there. Uh, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Uh, you may remember me from such tweets as hashtag hot, hot take Tuesdays or hot take twos muse ed. Um, uh, and if you've seen those on Twitter, that is me. Also, I have a couple of books out to help music teachers, uh, Rock Coach, which helps uh, teachers learn how to teach a rock band in a really authentic way and creative musicking, uh, which helps teachers basically flip Bloom's taxonomy upside down and start teaching with creativity instead of through a method or an approach like that, which is kind of what we were talking about. Um, And then uh, I have another book coming out from Oxford University Press, actually, and I'm not sure when, but soon, they tell me soon. So, yeah, and I teach in Canada on the East Coast. You can probably tell from my accent. I don't know. Maybe you can't. But uh, in the smallest province, Prince Edward Island, uh, on the east end of that island. So that's me in a nutshell. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to go ahead and say that I discovered you, right? Yes. Because I think one of your, your first maybe was was IMES right yep because you hadn't you hadn't really done any conference presentations yeah I haven't really done a lot like I did a little bit around where I'm from um and that's kind of what got me hooked on it but I had a website the website Steve's Music Room was very different 10 years ago (laughs) when I started it and it was just kind of like a a project where I would put lesson plans up online and people would you know download them and I was happy to you know share them for free and then uh 
yeah, actually. And then you got a hold of me. And at one point we just kind of like hit it off and I started doing more presentations and the website got bigger and connections grew. So yeah, it was a, it's a good thing. Good. Well, I like, I like to be the stairs that lead others to success. Yes. So, there you go. <laughs> and yeah, my favorite story was, um, I was at Texas music educators and, and I was with all these music, music tech people, amazing time members. And I heard somebody say across the table, cause we were at this, you know, kind of seedy Mexican restaurant anyway. And yeah. I hear him say musicking. And I was like, wait, what? You're musicking? And he's like, oh, yeah, I've been reading this book, only I can't do his Irish accent, of course. Yes. Um, <laughs> but uh, Richard McCready, of course. Yeah. So he's, he's like, oh, yeah, I've been reading this book by Steve Giddings. And I was like, no way. <laughs> he's like, <laughs> and, and uh, anyway, so I told him how we'd been connected for years and I was a big fan of yours and I love promoting your stuff and doing what I can to use my platform to uh, lift, lift you up. Cause I think what you're doing is so essential for music teachers right now. And uh, he was like, oh, can you connect us? And so, like, of course I can. <laughs> so the fact that it did go like full circle and you did end up doing a book with him and you did end up going through Oxford Press, like, I'm just so, so thrilled for you. And it was interesting. It was really cool because I just released that book, the creative musicking in January of 2020. Mm -hmm. And then a month later was the, the Texas music educators conference. And two days after that, Richard emails me. Yeah. So it was like February, 2020 or, you know, something like that. And he's like, can you write a book for us? I'm like, what? <laughs> a book, a whole book. I just finished writing a book. Uh, Anyway, I was at the point where like, I told my wife, no more books for a while, you know, I'm good. And then they're like, I like show this email. She's like, oh, okay. <laughs> I guess you can't say no to that. So yeah. Anyway, no, that's, that's so, so awesome. I'm, I'm always just so excited um, to watch everybody's success and, and they, they totally tap the right person. So that's why I wanted to, to have you on the podcast. This is not your first time on, on this no. podcast. I think when was the last time? 2018? Was it 2017? Maybe I've been at this a long time, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, um, I, I think it's so great what you've been, I mean, you've been posting these, what I consider pretty provocative, uh, posts on Twitter and <laughs> Facebook, uh, like you had one that was about music history and how we tend to honor like these great composers of note, right? Mozart, Beethoven, Bach, but that they weren't even really the popular music of their time. They weren't what people were listening to. Can you talk to me about that paradigm shift? Yeah. And it's interesting because we're always kind of just defaulted to understand that uh, Mozart and all of the greats that we know, or, you know, greats, quote unquote, are the ones that was the popular music of its time and that people were listening to it, you know, down the street. And then they may have been, you know, there may have been some recognizable melodies that, that they would have had. However, it certainly wasn't considered the popular music of its time because it was more so music of the elite and music of, uh, you know, those who could afford to go to a, a Mozart concert or, you know, music of the church or music of the courts. So essentially, it's not the popular music of its time, but we're led to believe that it is mostly because of the fact that it's written down and you can actually see it and reproduce it. Because what was more popular at the time were these broadside ballads, um, I've been finding out, which were songs written on a broadside, which is basically just a sheet of paper. Um, and they would use familiar melodies, familiar folk melodies, and change the lyrics to, you know, express news or express different uh, happenings at the time, or maybe to advertise for something else that's happening in the town. Wait, so they were parodies? Some, some of them were parodies, but they were more so like using a familiar melody to tell a story so that they would say there would be no notation 
or there might be notation like medieval notation inscribed in there, but sometimes it would say to the tune of such and such. And here's some new lyrics. And there'd be people singing them in the streets. And then you would pay like a really, they'd be super cheap, like a penny or whatever, whatever that would have been at the time, but most people could afford them. So it was essentially kind of like, like a, a Spotify where you just, you have a subscription service to this music uh, and these people would just buy these broadside ballads and they would sing those tunes at home or they would sing them in the streets with their, their friends. And it was a way of kind of communicating uh, the happenings of the day. And really that's kind of what popular music is now where you, uh, you know, you pay for a subscription to, you know, whatever popular music you enjoy. And then, um, yeah, it's wi widely uh, distributed throughout the world kind of like broadside ballads were. Yeah. Fun fact, the Music and Mentor podcast is now on Spotify too. There you go. So, <laughs> but yeah, it's like if it's if we were to write a write lyrics to the can can, right? Yes. Yeah, kind of the same way. And people would probably know or most people would know the melody to that already. So they wouldn't necessarily have to even write it down. You know, one of my favorite, uh, I collect antique books and one of my favorite is from about 1921 and it is a book of ballads, limericks and other CD poetry <laughs> uh, that was put together by a quote unquote gentleman's club. Um, there were only like a thousand of these things printed. And it's one of my favorite books. And I'm not going to say what it's called here because people will look it up and potentially be offended because it is definitely potentially offensive. But you can totally like, there's no notation in it, but you can tell, like if you know some of the folk tunes enough, you can get what the parody is. Yeah. And, and the thing is about folk tunes is they're designed to be passed down through oral means so they're not really designed to be passed down with notation necessarily um you know a folk song is always passed down to another person just through singing it to them um and i think that's kind of what we forget when we're learning about music of the past is that we tend to value the music that's written down in a complex uh notation you know um and really, we kind of forget, too, that that notation was invented in Central Europe. Uh, and it's really a native uh, notational system of Central Europe. So I've kind of shifted my language when I'm talking about staff notation. And I'll often say European staff notation or Central European staff notation to specify that I'm talking about that type of staff notation because we forget that there are other types of notation, <laughs> even just in, even just in, um, uh, even just in North America, you know, uh, we forget about tablature a lot. We forget about um, flow charts that rappers use. We forget about uh, MIDI notation and uh, uh, tubs. And there's just so many that we don't even think about. Like Nashville numbers is a huge one, but we often don't even, bother to talk about it well and there's pictorial notation you know little yeah. kids rock their their whole modern band curriculum stuff uses a different type of notation than you've probably ever seen specifically for drum set well they that'd be called tubs that's time unit box system let's talk about music notation as a paradigm shift for sure. yes when you're talking about the time unit box system that's used in drum machines uh, it's used in MIDI. It's used in drum set notation, like early drum set notation. Um, you can use it really with anything um, because it just tells you play here, play here, play here, don't play here, play here, you know, because it's just these boxes. And it is a standardized notation. So when we're talking about, you know, uh, using standard notation, we don't just mean European staff notation. We mean tubs. We mean tab. We mean... Nashville numbers, we mean uh, so many other types of standard notation that we don't even understand outside of 
Western Europe and North America, or just the Western world in general, because there are other types of standard notation that we probably don't understand. Yeah, I love that. And here I was just, you know, fixated on alto clef. Yeah, and I mean, alto clef, that's like one instrument uses that, like, <laughs> in Europe. <laughs> you know, like, uh, I mean, why is it important for us to teach our students that there are different types of notation? Because I think it's important that they understand that certain instruments lend themselves better to certain types of notation uh, and that other uh, notations exist outside of the staff notation, that it's only really used in a certain genre or a certain group of instruments or in a certain part of the world. And I mean, it's become so standardized, the, I mean, talking about European staff notation that most of the world knows that notation, but then there are other notations that we just don't understand. So it's important for students to know that other, even that others exist, you know, cause uh, I didn't really know what uh, Nashville numbers was until my master's degree. And I felt jaded that I didn't know what this was. I had gone like 20 years, <laughs> 20 years of music education, not knowing that Nashville numbers existed. It was like, I, I, I was angry, actually. This <laughs> is like, what? Like, what do you mean? There's other types of notation outside of tab and staff notation. Yeah, <laughs> and, and even that, I mean, there the one that feels like it's a good bridge is look at just percussion notation, right? Yep. There's no clef. You can, it can be done on a single line. So it shouldn't feel like such a far stretch for there to be other types of notation that are more applicable for, for other instruments. Yeah, but it often is <laughs> a stretch for, even for me, when I was uh, learning, I was kind of led to believe that tab you know, growing up, learning a little bit, bit of guitar using tablature, I was kind of led to believe that basically uh, it's not real notation, that I shouldn't be using it, that it's cheating, you know, but it's, it's a standard, it's a standard notation. So when your curriculum guide says standard and non-standard notation, which is really common in a lot of curriculum guides, and I'm pretty sure it's even in the national standards in the US, um, that wording, they don't mean just staff notation, <laughs> but that's the best way they can put it. But often we're not, we're just not exposed to any other type of notation. So the teachers just teach what they're taught as we mentioned earlier and teach how they've been taught to teach. Right. And many teachers would probably say, well, I don't have time. I don't have time to teach that, but it doesn't, it doesn't take a lot of time to just introduce your students to a new concept. They don't have to obtain mastery of that. And that just says there, there needs to be a, it's like people who say, well, I would love to start running, but I don't have time. Or I would love to start exercising, but I don't have time. That yeah. just means that you don't, it, it's not don't a value priority. It yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You, will, <laughs> you will always, always, always find time for the things that you value. And yeah. so if you're questioning why you don't have time for things, look at how you do spend your time, including in your classroom, because where you spend your time is where you're indicating the value. And exactly. if, if you're not taking the time to open your students' minds to these other paradigms, these other concepts, these, you know, external, well, they shouldn't be external, right? But mm -hmm. these, these different situations and concepts, then what is it that you're really teaching them? Is it just you know, to be able to perform what's written on the page. Yeah. And here's, it's interesting because, you know, over time, we've been kind of led to believe that if you can read European staff notation, then, you know, it opens up a world of music that you uh, would never have experienced before. Uh, and that's partially true, but it's only true for one particular style of music that uses that extensively, uh, that type of notation. But if you're learning by ear, if you think about it from a learning by ear perspective, 
you can literally listen to anything and learn it by ear. So that kind of, to me, says that you can learn way more music by learning by ear than by notation. Yeah, that's what's so funny to me because my in my early career snobbery, um, I did have a niece who I guarantee will never, ever listen to this podcast, <laughs> who was a fantastic violinist because she could play anything by ear. You would say, hey, go, you know, listen to this piece of music. And she'd come back an hour later and be able to to play it for you. And I was just like, well, that's not real. That's not that's not I mean, can you write it down? Like, can you sight read this piece out of the church's book of songs, you know? And she'd be yeah. like, no, I'd have to, I'd have to work on that, but, but she could pick it up by ear. So why do we value note reading over ear training? And why is it important for us to open the world of ear training and playing by ear to our students? And it's funny because I wrote a blog post about the difference between ear training and learning by ear, because they're not the same thing. They're related. They're similar. But learning by ear is basically you are uh, learning skills as you need to learn them for that particular song that you're learning by ear. Um, and you typically learn it on an instrument that you're comfortable with. And, you know, there's so many other factors, but when you go to ear training, that's like, let's do drills. Let's do it, on, listen to this on the piano or listen to this on an instrument you've never heard before or that you're not comfortable with listening to. Um, and just the kind of shifting the way we think about ear training to think more about learning by ear is kind of what we need to get into as well. Because learning by ear, it's been proven um, or observed at least that if you learn by ear, you will actually develop your ear faster um, than someone who is, um, than someone who is, uh, doing ear training drills, you may not like, they may not develop a better ear. They may not, they may be equal. They could develop a better ear, but it will be developed faster because they're being thrown basically into a real life situation where here's this piece of music. All right, now learn it. You have no sheet music you know? So that's the way it works. <laughs> yeah. But even just bringing that up, like shoots a little bolt of terror in me because mm -hmm. that sounds so scary, not having the mm -hmm. security of the music stand and the written music in front of me. Yeah, I know. Uh, and it, the, the thing is to get better at learning by ears, you just got to learn by ear, um, like any skill. And it's, I make it sound so simple, <laughs> but it really, it really is that simple. If you do it, you get better at it. Um, it's like any skill. Um, we often kind of think like if a person can already kind of has a knack for learning by ear that they're some type of, uh, you know, alien from another universe, but they learn that skill just like anyone else, you know, by doing it. And, uh, that's really the only way to develop it. Um, and uh, it, it could definitely be terrifying to like get rid of the notation and suddenly not have anything to play. But if you just get rid of the notation and even pick a scale and just make up something in that scale, that's a great way to begin because uh, you're actually making your own music, you're being creative and there's no safety blanket. Okay, so let's talk about being creative because that is one of the, the core national standards is to create music. And I don't feel like we do that enough. We're great at performing music. We're great at, you know, playing in groups and as individuals and, and probably learning about music history and, you know, all of these other areas, but I feel like we get stuck on music creation. Is that just because the bar is too high? For a long time, I, I remember even in my band days growing up, like grade seven, eight, nine, listening to the word like music making. And the word music making to me suggests that you are making something new. But at that time, growing up in band, and it's typically used, 
it can be used in this way too, but it means performing the music on the page together. So you are in a sense, you know, quote unquote, making music, but you're not really making it. You're just, how do I say this without offending a whole lot of people? Uh, you are reciting what's on the page or recreating because what's already there has been created already. All you're doing is recreating or reciting. Um, that word reciting got me a lot of uh, flack on Twitter. But when you think about it, that is essentially what you are doing. Like when you read a book out loud, you're not making the story. You're not story making. You're reciting the book. Well, isn't that why we put on recitals? Exactly. We recite. And yes, I get it. Yes, you can make creative choices. But to me, those that's interpretational. So that's up to the individual. And that gets into a whole nother kettle of fish that I'm not sure I'm ready for. But you are essentially recreating when you're making music with a group. So I think it's that term music making and creating that has kind of been misconstrued over the over the last couple of uh, decades. And creating music can also mean, you know, creating it from a page, like making it come to life from a page. But to me, creating and making means you're actually creating something new and or making something new. So it has a lot to do with that. And I know in the national standards, because I had to, uh, I looked through them for my Oxford book and kind of studied to see what was in there to understand what was going on. And I know that in the national standards, they define creation as creating something new, essentially, um, and not necessarily like an original work is the wording they, they use in the national standards. But that's kind of as far as it goes. And what that means to a particular educator might be something different. But at the same time, they may, like you said, look at creating something original and interpret it as like, that's scary, you know, and you, you don't want to touch that with a 10 foot pole because it's messy and we don't want to, you know, make a mistake. Because <laughs> Right. We're, Cause we're kind of trained to, for perfection. We're, we're like, trying All right, to be but go, go listen to the Ted talk by Victor Wooten and you'll feel better about making mistakes. Yes. Um, Cause you're only a semitone away from the right note. Yes, that's right. And, and that, okay. So, so one thought I had while you were, you were talking about that, thinking about contests and adjudication, are we not just then testing ourselves to how close we can be to the composer's original creation? Mm -hmm. We are. That's essentially all it is. Okay, so next month, I expect all your Twitter posts to be about uh, not just music recitation, 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 <laughs> uh, anyway, um, but about musical interpretation and, and how that applies to, to music creation and musicianship. It's interesting because I made this whole infographic, which I can send, put up in the doc there for you to send out. Heck yes. Caused a ton of controversy on Twitter. I kept sending it out like, is this good? What do you think? And they're like, oh, it's awful. Oh man, you're offending me. Um, and basically it was like a continuum of creativity slash continuum of music creation or music making. So on one end it was original composition and the other mm -hmm. end, was interpretation and then it's basically it looks like a hierarchy <laughs> because it's this way like it's a it's a vertical so it can easily be interpreted as a hierarchy uh, so i get that <laughs> but it's more of just this is what these activities these musical ensembles these uh, musical activities are 
uh, more compositional and creative than playing music in an orchestra, for example, where the where the, uh, the the director essentially tells you what to do, right. and the music on the page, like the written notes, tell you what to do. It's an instruction manual, and that's like the extreme end, right? But then also, I mean, yes, there's tons of other ways to make music in the classical realm. There's like little pockets of, you know, uh, uh, baroque improvisation uh, improvisers that that you know would definitely go on one other end as well. So I don't think that interpreting a piece of music is an overly creative act in itself. There mm -hmm. are creative elements for sure, uh, but it's not an overly creative act in on itself. And that's okay. Yeah. Right. I mean, we, yeah. we should be, we should have the skills to be able to sight read and perform things, but I think the issue comes when we are mislabeling things incorrectly. So saying exactly. that because I can play, you know, Beethoven sonata on the French horn and make it sound amazing, by the way, yeah. yes. um, that, that doesn't mean <laughs> that I, I am creating it. And I wonder if we almost disvalue creation, which is why we're so concerned with copyright you know, and why we're so concerned with, well, why, why do I have to pay for this, you know, piece of music or why should I pay to, you know, have this piece of music on YouTube and receive the benefits of that? Is it because we don't value the, the actual creation and creative arts? I wonder, or is it that we think creation is way more challenging than it actually is because oh, of the greats, you know, they've kind of let us, I know you can't see that on the podcast, but I'm doing air quotes. <laughs> um, <laughs> just thought I'd clarify the greats that maybe weren't as great as we once thought. No, um, it's, it, it, no, you're so, you're so right. You know, you know? I, I, I'm trying to remember, I think it was in college and I was learning about Mozart and my teacher was like, look, yeah, Mozart was, was probably brilliant, but you would be too, if you started at four years old and your parent was a teacher and, you know, and yeah, he was probably a bright kid, but if you look at his, or if you listen to the Mozart playlist on Spotify, yeah. which I often do when I'm studying, especially it all starts to sound very similar because Mozart was a sponge. He went and listened to other people's music and he copied their style. He, and, and he was very formulaic. And so of course he was able to produce so much music and he, yeah, he was brilliant and he had some interest in a wide variety of, you know, musical genres, but he also copied himself a lot. Mm-hmm. I can think of one uh, modern composer by the name of John Williams that does that. <laughs> um, and it yeah. works. Like uh, even Mozart and, uh, you know, Haydn were really well known for borrowing popular melodies uh, of the time. So popular folk melodies that people would know. So that when you went to your, their concert, you'd be like, oh, I recognize this tune. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, and because copyright laws didn't exist, they could do that um, and get away with it and, you know, hook their audience. And really, they're just doing what, uh, you know, modern producers are accused of doing when really they're just doing, they're just composing music. They're, you know, I don't think there is a, such a thing as an original idea because the ideas that you come up with are influenced by something that you may have, might have heard before. So to say that something is a completely original idea is, is not entirely true. Yeah. Um, and we are led to believe in music school that there's one way to compose. And if you don't compose that way, you aren't good enough and you aren't one of the greats. So don't bother. It's essentially kind of the, the idea. Yeah, there's one of my favorite TED Talks of all time. I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. So everybody go to music smartmusic.com slash blog and check out the show notes for this episode. And I'll, I'll be sure to put all, all the resources that we've talked about in there, 
but there's one about music sampling and it's this amazing producer and he's set up on the stage to do it live and he live mixes and like pulls in all these samples and he shows how throughout time we continually do copy each other but I also like to think that copying is the you know greatest form of flattery right so if you if you don't like something you don't sample it you don't copy it and reuse it yeah and that's interesting too because in that infographic that I mentioned earlier about you know the two ends of creativity or music making it was kind of inspired from this uh, video by Adam Neely. I don't know if you're familiar with Adam Neely um, and Ethan Hine was uh, the guest on, on that particular uh, video blog. And they were talking about why there are no rap covers. And the reason is uh, apparently in the kind of the hip hop culture, it is considered disrespectful to cover someone else's song, which is the complete opposite of classical music. Whereas, as you know, in classical music, if you don't reproduce exactly what's on the page, it's considered disrespectful. So that got me really thinking about, you know, creativity and what we can learn from hip hop culture when it comes to creating original music in music education. So in that regard, music creation in the, uh, in the hip hop culture, I guess, has to be original. Again, you're influenced by what you listen to and your likes and dislikes, but you can't copy someone else's sound and you can't copy someone else's lyric. And it's kind of like an unwritten rule. And you know, in a rock band, if you reproduce a song note for note, it's considered kind of like an, an homage to that group. And, you know, you, you would typically see like, you know, cover bands that devote all of their music making time to a particular group. And they just reproduce the music of that group all the time. So, and that's a way of paying homage to that group. But you will hear occasionally, uh, you know, the original solo or a, a made-up solo within, with, within that context, which is completely acceptable as well. So you're kind of making your own arrangement. But then in the jazz world, Ethan Hine was saying, as he kind of comes from a jazz background, in the jazz world, you do not get up in front of an audience and play someone else's solo. That is not allowed. You just you get laughed off the stage. You have to make you have to make an original solo if you're going up there. You can quote, so you can like play a little quote from a, a particular uh, you know solo if you like to to kind of pay homage. But that's it. You just quote like for uh, two beats or something, right? But otherwise, it has to be completely original um, for that piece. So it got me thinking of like, is there a spectrum? Or is there a continuum of creativity within the music making world in at least the Western uh, cultures? And uh, when you mentioned sampling, that is, like you said, a whole form of, you know, what, what did you say? You said something like it was flattery, right? Like a, the ultimate form of flattery when you sample someone else's work and make make a new song from samples that someone already uh, already recorded. So I was just thinking about young students, which you and I have both been elementary teachers for many years mm -hmm. and now middle school. And I tried to make it so liberating and so acceptable for my students to make music at any level at any time. Mm -hmm. So I started with my, my kindergartners, as soon as they had the concept of notation, now it was pictorial, you know, certainly not European yes. staff notation, but some sort of pictorial notation, they would start to create songs, utilizing the tools that they were given, just as ELA teachers encouraged their students to write poetry after mm -hmm. a certain form, you know, we have 
haikus and sonnets and stuff like that. Yes. And the proudest moments that I have had as a teacher are when students will come in and say, Miss Jones, Miss Jones, I wrote this song. Can I sing it for you? You know, yeah. or I made this thing up on my trumpet last night. Can I play it for you? And so just by broadening our perspectives and opening our paradigms, we're enabling our students to become real creators. And mm -hmm. there's something so enabling and enriching in that, that we, they may not get anywhere else. Exactly. And the thing about iconic notation too, or like invented notation, I guess, too, is that the, uh, like when I was teaching elementary for a while, I would do this project where they would um, they would make up a, a song on like a pentatonic scale with the ORF percussion. And I would just say, okay, figure out a way to write it down so you don't forget it. And they would just write it down and it, it would make sense to them. It may not make any sense to me or anyone else in the class, but I don't need to, I don't need to remember it. <laughs> you know, they need to remember it. And the only time you really need to write it down in like a standard notation is if you're giving it to someone else to play. Um, so at the end of the day, if they're making something that's valuable to them, who cares how they write it down? And then we would, you know, as a class, we would uh, learn each other's and then we would start to use the standard notation because at that point we are all learning it. And we're trying to communicate the idea of the song and the rhythms and pitches to the rest of the class. So we need a standardized way to help us all understand what's going on here. So that's really the only time you need to be able to have it in a standard notation. Otherwise, use non-standards because it's really just for them anyway. So will you tell us about your books? I know you started with Rock Coach. Yes. Which we should all just open our minds and say, yeah, it's okay to play any instrument in any ensemble. How dare I? Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> and it's okay to do any type of music with any ensemble. It's okay. It's, it's just okay. music making. So yeah, yes. tell us a little bit about your books, especially creative musicking. And why did you have this idea to write it? And why is it important? Well, I started with Rock Coach, which is basically, I know I had a lot of people, I started doing a rock band basically with kids in grade four, the first school I taught. And then the next school I was at was a K to six school. And I kept that going there. Rock band kind of extracurricular. And then I added some of that stuff into my regular music classes. And I had people asking me, you know, what, how I did it. And I was asked to do a couple of presentations on how to do this stuff. So I eventually just, you know, wrote a book about it, uh, all of my ideas and all the resources that I had kind of, uh, you know, uh, collected over the time, I kind of put it together and, and made it into a book. And it promotes the informal learning approach, which is basically kind of letting the kids figure it out themselves. Because oftentimes when you're learning a folk melody, or if, if you think of any folk style, like if you, where I'm from, fiddling is super popular and fiddling is passed down without notation. It's passed down just by going to a party and playing and picking it up that way. And a lot of vernacular, like that, that type of music is often not using notation and same with rock music and a lot of popular styles. It's all done by ear or in friend groups or teaching each other or through tab on the internet. And all of that is often done without any help from the music department at a school because those kids make music differently than than we kind of expect them to and so this book kind of helps teachers understand that paradigm and be able to approach music in a different way with a different style of music that they're not normally uh, accustomed to playing because they've let's face it they've probably never ever played it before and it's different Right. And, um, but just because it's different doesn't mean it's not lesser. Wait, exactly. It means it's, exactly. doesn't mean it I know what you're lesser. saying. Yeah. 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 Um, I, yeah. There's, I know there's, what you're saying. There's still musicians. They're still making music. They still are passionate about it. Exactly. And at the end of the day, they're making music that's relevant to them. 
and they're learning how to perform in an ensemble. They're learning by ear. They're um, doing all of the things that a lot of the time the bands and choirs and schools have a tough time teaching all at once. Sure, there's no European staff notation, but there's tab and there's Nashville numbers and there's learning by ear a lot more naturally. There's creating happening more naturally too because of the way it's approached or the way it should be approached, which is informally giving them kind of the, uh, it's learner centered. So it's based on choice. It's based on uh, YouTube videos, essentially. You could learn it all on YouTube. And uh, so, yeah, it's not lesser, it's just different. And that's okay. It has a lot of benefits. And uh, it's better at teaching certain things that, that, you know, wind band is not so good at teaching. Right. Although big shout out for wind band players. You can always join your community band. Big believer. Yes, for sure. But not a lot of that's another hot take. You want to get into that? (laughs) (laughs) About what lifelong playing or lifelong learning and lifelong playing. Isn't that what we're really trying to create, Steve? (laughs) Don't we want our students? You know, when I took my elementary teaching job and I, I printed out the full stack of Colorado music standards for every single grade so that I could create my curriculum. And I went into my principal and I said, what do you dropped the big heavy curriculum thing? And I said, what do you want me to teach these students? And he said, I just want them to love music. There you go. For the rest of their lives. We just and, I just want them to love it. And that kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier too, because, uh, and I should preface this so that everyone knows, I don't hate band. I love it. <laughs> I play in wind bands. I play in a jazz band. Uh, I've played in community ensembles. I do enjoy it. And you, However, play, you play in a professional <laughs> ensemble too, don't you? Uh, yeah, off and on, off and on. We had a band for a while and then we haven't really played any gigs in a while. I mean, mostly due to COVID, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, things just get busy and we haven't really gotten together, but I I play in a ska band usually. And I play in another rock band on drums. So I play trombone and drums in different bands. Okay. I interrupted Um, you. You love band. Yeah. So I love band. However, The only reason or one of the main reasons community bands even exist is because they exist in schools. And that's not saying it's a bad thing. I'm just saying that we need to kind of think about that when we are thinking about lifelong learners, because in a community band, it's kind of a facsimile of how it was in the school where they're learning, they're learning the music through uh, notation. And they're learning, uh, you know, how to play in a band again. Um, And the only other place outside of schools where bands like that exist is in the military. There are are very few professional wind ensembles. Uh, I would even, even in Canada, I think there might be one in Quebec. I think another one out in the prairie. So I'd say two in the entire country, like not super lucrative. Whereas if you can teach a kid to learn by ear or teach a kid to create their own music, they are much, much more likely to engage in music throughout their lifetime. Because if they can learn by ear well and efficiently, all they have to do is turn on the radio or turn on the song and play it. They don't need to buy sheet music or download sheet music from somewhere. Um, or play in a community band or publisher friends <laughs> yes however there could be more um it just needs to be re- re- rethought right <laughs> this is what we're talking about here's right here's my thought is that there are there should be as many ways to make music as there are to exercise your body mm-hmm You know, and if you are like me, I'm a solo trail runner. I rarely mountain bike with other people. I'm, I'm pretty athletic, but I'm also okay to just play my ukulele and, and sing solo. 
but mm-hmm. some people prefer playing with teams and having soccer games and team sports. And oh my gosh, the local park here was overrun with geriatric people playing pickleball, which I think is fantastic. Yes. We need that, that many options for people as well, because music making changes lives. It does. And I need to uh, reiterate that I don't hate band. (laughs) (laughs) And I do think reading staff notation is important. Um, It's just not as important as we've all been led to believe over the years. And when we get to like create your own music, you can actually just create music without having to reference anything else. You can just kind of create your own music. And that that feeds into learning music into the lifetime because you don't need sheet music. You don't need, you just need you and your instrument, which really should be what it is at the end of the day. If you can just enjoy making music on your own in the way that you see fit, I think that is much more powerful. Really what I'm trying to say is we have this strange over-reliance on notation And we think that, you know, if you learn notation, you can learn anything and you can make music into your lifetime because you, uh, because you can read anything, but that's not necessarily true. We just have to kind of rethink how we were taught to believe that and why we were taught to believe that. Now, standard notation, everything we've been taught is one way of making music. One single way. It's not the only way to make and create music. And it is certainly valuable. Don't get me wrong. It's just uh, we have this strange over-reliance on it that needs to be rethought. All right. So what's what's next for you? What's next month on Twitter? Next month on Twitter? Well, I you know, I go and I have a thought. I just put it into my phone on this like file that says Hot Take Tuesdays. Um, and oftentimes I'll just go through that list before it's due and I'll be like, okay, which one today? Oh, that's a good one. I think you should call it <laughs> po- poking the bear or something or stirring, <laughs> stirring the pot. Um, yeah. I've, I've really enjoyed it, Steve, and, and I've enjoyed our conversation. And so thank you so much. I hope that all of the people who listen to this, um, at least take a moment to, to rethink our purpose as music educators and what we're really doing to serve our students as they become lifelong learners. And are we truly giving them a holistic vision of what music is in their lives? Because we should be the ones facilitating that. Well, yeah, and that's it. And when we go back to, you know, including a rock band in your school or some type of popular ensemble, we talk about the um, concept of the other 80%. So you engage about 20% of your school population, maybe 30% of your school population in music through band. But what about that other 70 to 80% that don't like musicking in that way or are already musicking at home, but aren't part of the band program because that's not how they music or they don't feel welcome in the music program. Swing, swing your doors open wide. That's how it's, that's really how it should be. Offer something for everyone. So, well, this has been just charming. I love it. Steve does not hate band. That is the (laughs) big takeaway. I've been uh, kind of accused as a, of, as a band hater. So I just want to make sure that's clear. (laughs) It just needs a rethinking. I'd like to reiterate what Steve and I both affirm at the end of this episode. We aren't anti-band. We're both lifelong band geeks and we are pro music. We have this incredible opportunity at this time in history to rethink how we are teaching and what we are teaching and why we are teaching. If we're looking for continual improvements to our own teaching practice, it's time to ask ourselves these big questions and to stretch outside of our comfort zone. It can be uncomfortable. It probably will be. 
but it can also be completely transformative and drive some of the greatest improvements imaginable. I hope this episode gave you at least one thing to think about, even if it is an affirmation of your calling to teach. Another huge thanks to Smart Music for supporting this podcast, which is now available on Spotify. Be sure to visit the show notes page for this episode and to collect all the resources we discuss and to connect with Steve. His Twitter feed will really make you think. Thank you to Music Professor for continued support of this podcast. Learn more about how these online video curriculum resources can support your classroom teaching regardless of your method book or your student's teaching level by visiting musicprofessor.com schools today. And remember, most of all, to be kind to yourself. Be cozy with yourself. Remind yourself that you live an awesome, relaxed life full of music, joy, and transformation. And remember to keep teaching on.